glad to see everyone here with us this morning. Uh, we're continuing through our series going through the book of Exodus, so you can flip to that if you want to in your Bibles. It should be pretty easy. It's the second book. Um, or if you want to follow on the screen when we get there, feel free to do so. But before we dive in <coughs> to Exodus, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for this time that we can come before you as your people, that we can worship together and praise your name together, lift our voices together, uh, lift our hearts and our eyes to see who you are. And Lord, I just pray for this time as we open up your word, that you show us who you are through it, that we see how you've moved through history, that we can see how you're still moving through our own lives and through the history we're experiencing today. And Lord, I just pray that through your word that you can grow us to be more and more like your son, that through your word you can make us more and more like you would have us be, that we truly can be your people in all circumstances in any situation. Lord, we love you, we seek you, and pray all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it is an honest book. That when you read it and you read these people who it depicts and talks about, it, it tells the story in honest ways. That you see these quote-unquote heroes of the Bible and they, you see them um, be human. You see them warts and all. You see these people who have seen God and are working and uh, serving God and walking with God, but yet they still have doubts. They still have crises. They still wonder what's going on. They still... Um, fell or are scared, and you see just a human picture of these people. But it's not just the individuals, it's actually the, the whole people of God, that when God calls a people to himself, you still see that God's people are people. They question what's going on, they don't really see and understand how God's moving in these circumstances, they doubt, and, and they are just so human. And I, I love that about the Bible because it shows us that God does not call us to be something other than what we are. He does not call the strong and the people who have it all together, but he calls people who are just like us, which are human, with all the frailties that come with that. And when we read the book of Exodus, we see this made very clear. For in the book of Exodus, I, and almost besides any other book, you see the frailty of God's people as they're pulled from slavery, as they're delivered from all these things, and yet they still complain and grumble, and they still wonder what's going on, and they still question. And so as we dive into Exodus chapter 5 and 6 today, we see how human these people are, but also we can learn from that an example of how what faith happens in our lives or how faith should be working in our lives. Now I'm going to do something a little different today. Usually I read the passage and then I give you kind of like my main idea that I want you to take home that I see from the passage. But we're reading basically two chapters of the Bible today. And so I just want to give you my big idea up front. And then as we read and as we talk about it, hopefully you can see how I came to that big idea through the word. And so when I look at Exodus chapter 5 and Exodus chapter 6, I see it's an example of faith, but it's not a good example of faith, but it's an example of faith that we can learn from, and it teaches us what faith should be. And so faith is trusting God's I will surrounded by opposition. That's what we see as we're about to dive in, because we see God's people, and they're surrounded by opposition, and God replies to them, 
one simple statement, I will, repeated many times. And that the essence of faith is that, that we know who God is and we trust in who God is and what he has said he's going to do. And so faith is trusting God's I will surrounded by opposition. So let's dig into the word and see how I came to that conclusion. We're going to start in Exodus chapter 5 and read this chapter as we see about how the Israelite people are now surrounded by opposition. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, so just backing up right there afterwards, we have to remember what happened at uh, chapter 4 is that Moses and Aaron have now entered back into Egypt and they have now spoken to the Israelite people, but after they've spoken to the Israelite people, now they turn and they say, we must talk to Pharaoh. And so afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens? The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will, give you, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather straw for stubble. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, and the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall, have, you, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. <clears throat> they met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. We'll stop there. What we see there is that opposition hitting the Israelite people. But moreover, what you see there 
when Moses and Aaron, they walk in and they confront Pharaoh with the very word that they just shared with the Israelite people, you get totally two different responses. When Moses and Aaron walked up to the Israelite elders and they told them what God had told them in the desert, the Israelite people praised and they worshiped God. They bowed down and worshiped God. He was finally going to deliver them. And so now Moses and Aaron take that same message and they walk into Pharaoh. And instead of getting that response, they get the response of the, the arrogance of ignorance. And when they walk up and they start talking to Pharaoh, what is Pharaoh's response to them? He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. On a surface level, Pharaoh is expressing ignorance. He's like, I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know this God that you're coming to speak to me about. Who is this Lord? And he's kind of like, I don't know. But, on, but it's really a level of arrogance. Because Moses and Aaron came speaking to him and going to tell them who this Lord is. When we read the Bible, we see how they came to Pharaoh and they used the Lord's name. And you see that in the, the all caps, Lord, in your Bible. That's meaning they came and said, hey, Yahweh Kate has come and he's telling you this. That they're declaring to Pharaoh, just like they declared to the Israelite people, the personable name of God. That this God is the great I am. And they're saying, hey, listen up. This is who came. This is who's talking to us. And he's telling the same thing to you. And Pharaoh's response is, I don't know this person. It's not just that Pharaoh does not want to know God. Well, it's not, he does not that he just does not know God. He does not want to know God. He's arrogant in his unbelief. He's saying, I don't need to know him. Now, I don't know where Pharaoh sat in his belief on the pantheon of the Egyptians' God. I don't know if, as some people say, that Pharaoh was kind of considered a god himself for the Egyptians or if he was that conduit for the Egyptian people to their gods. But whatever it is, you have Pharaoh confronted with this great god who can only be called I Am, and yet he is confronted with this god and says, wait, no, I don't want to hear it. Because listening and hearing about this god is going to upset everything. That if this God is truly who he says and who Moses and Aaron say he is, then who am I? Who is Pharaoh? Is Pharaoh still Pharaoh? If this God is true and is my reign still intact or, or is this an undermining of my power? And so he puts himself in an opposition against God that he doesn't care to know who this God is that Moses and Aaron came to speak about. But this shouldn't surprise us. <clears throat> if you've ever sought to share the gospel with someone who does not believe, you quickly run into the exact same thing. An arrogance of ignorance. That they don't know and they don't want to know. And that when we come and share the faith, share the gospel, the true uh, gospel of Jesus Christ with people, you'll run into this where people don't want to know they fight against it. That even when you come and want to share with them the truth, they don't want to know. They place themselves in opposition to who God is and what he's revealed himself to be. I've shared my faith with people before, and it's amazing how quick that people can revert to agnosticism. 
that they will really quickly, when you share their faith, they will go, well, I can't know, and you can't know, and so what's good is good for you, and what's good is good for me, right? I just can't know. And they think they're safe. I just can't know. You can't know. We're ignorant about this, right? No, because they're actually making this claim that even when you talk to them and say, hey, look at the Bible and see how trustworthy it is. Look at the truth about all the world, how it testifies to the glory of God. Look about this, how it actually makes reasonable and rational sense to believe that there is a creator, believe that someone designed us and made us and loves us. Look at this truth and they still say, well, I can't know because they think they're safe, but they're not safe. And that is the battle that we confront on a daily basis when we go out to share our faith. It's the battle of unbelief. The battle of unbelief that we see Pharaoh having here that he does not want to know. Why? Because Pharaoh says, if I believe, I can't be my own God. And when we speak to someone who does not know Christ and we share who Christ is, that's the same battle going on. Because they say, if that is true, if this God exists, I can't be my own God. I can't be the own master of my own domain. I can't be the, 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 the one in charge of my fate. So if what you say is true, it's going to upset everything in my life. And that right there is that battle of unbelief, the spiritual battle that we go into as Christians as we share the gospel. It's the same battle that Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians when, he, when he's talking about this. And he says in 2 Corinthians uh, 10, starting verse 4, it says, For the weapons of our warfare, warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy, <clears throat> to destroy uh, strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought, uh, and take, thought uh, take every thought captive to obey Christ. He's speaking about that spiritual warfare of fighting unbeliefs that Moses and Aaron came with the word of God, how God has revealed themselves himself to them, and they bring it to Pharaoh and they confront it with unbelief. But this is the power to destroy these arguments that plate themselves up against God. And the same is true with us, that when we walk into an unbeliever's life and we share the gospel, we bring the word of God, our spiritual weapon, which is the word of God, and we declare it to him, and it has the power to destroy those arguments, those strongholds that are imposed to our God as he's working through us as we declare it. And so this battle of unbelief, we should not be surprised by it. That we are called, just like Moses and Aaron, to bring the word of God, and then God works through that. And he works through that in different ways in different people's lives. What's interesting here is Moses and Aaron confront Pharaoh, Pharaoh's response, which is more opposition to who God is which actually is not surprising if you've lived in this world for any time whatsoever, that when we seek to live for God, we get opposition <clears throat> against that. But just look at what Pharaoh's response is. He basically says, "You, the people, Israel wants to go out and worship for three days and have a feast out in the wilderness. They must have too much time on their hands. My goodness, my slaves are lazy. They're idle. So how about we make them do the same amount of work, but we'll take one of those vital ingredients for making bricks, and they have to find their own straw, but they have to make the same number. And so this oppression hits. He actually attacks them. He opposes them, the very idea that they would go and worship God. 
But notice, this is not yet to the point where the Israelite or people were talking about leaving Egypt. This is just the beginning when they're saying, let's, let's go and worship God. And Pharaoh says no. His opposition is not for them to leave Egypt. His opposition is they can't worship their God. And his opposition is like, you can't follow God as he called you to follow him. That he's placing himself in direct opposition to who God is and what God wants for his people. He's opposing that. And so he attacks them and he makes this, the, the, um, the work even harder than it was. Makes their slavery even worse than it was. Because he's opposing God and his ways. But I've already kind of said this. This shouldn't surprise us who know Christ. As we seek to follow Christ in this world, a world that does not know God, it shouldn't surprise us at all. Why? Because Jesus himself said that if we follow him, we too will be persecuted just like he was. In John uh, 15 verse 20 he says remember the word that I said to you a servant is not greater than his master if they persecute me they will also persecute you and then the apostle Peter talks writing in 2 Peter 3 3 he says this knowing first of all that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing this idea that if people persecuted Jesus if we seek to follow Jesus we should expect opposition from people who don't know Jesus from systems that are opposed to the ways of Jesus. And that we actually should expect that when people come, they'll scoff at us with scoffing. They'll say, how dare you think you can follow Christ? How dare you think you can follow God? How dare you can think you can be different than the ways of the world? How dare you? And they'll put opposition and obstacles in our way as we seek to follow Christ. You doubt that? Then here's a challenge. Seek to live for Christ in all areas of your life and see what happens. Seek to actually honestly serve like Christ calls us to serve. Love like Christ calls us, calls us to serve. Share the gospel like God calls us to share the gospel and see what happens. Because you'll most likely start hearing murmurs and maybe even now right to your face, people will call you different things. They might call you a Jesus freak. They might call you holier than thou because they have missed the message that you're not saying you're holier, but you bring someone who can make them holy as they follow Christ. Amen. They miss it, and they're confused. But they'll attack you. There'll be opposition against you. You doubt it? Seek to follow the Christian ethic, the commands of Jesus, and how he has given us this world and told us how to live in this world, and you'll be called a bigot. You'll be called arrogant and ignorant. You'll be called all sorts of names, maybe just a dinosaur, out of step with the world. I'll take that one. But they'll call these things, they'll put obstacles in your way to following God, just like Pharaoh and the whole of Egypt responded to Moses and Aaron. They put obstacles in the way of the people. Just think about it. One of the big things I just... I think it's kind of humorous, but it's everywhere in our society, is seek to make it a priority to worship with your church family on a Sunday and just watch how many things you're involved in want to put things on Sunday and draw you away from worshiping with your family. Now, these could be good things. They could be fun things. 
But there are all these things, and I know why they do it, because historically, Sundays have been free, so it's an easy day to plant something there, and it's all good. But when we believe, as the Bible tells us, that Sunday is a time when we gather with God's people to be refreshed and be renewed and know who he is and worship together, and we seek to make that a priority, we'll see again and again all these things in our life try to put obstacles in our way to make it hard. We face opposition in that. And it seems like God's people did not expect these oppositions to get worse. We say that because when you read at the end of verse uh, chapter 4, we see the, see the Israelites' people, they hear Moses and Aaron, and they bow down and they worship. They're praising God. They're saying, deliverance is here. And then Pharaoh responds with more and harsher work. And at the end of chapter 5, where are the people of God? Complaining to Pharaoh, what are you doing to us? Then looking at Aaron and Moses saying, why? Why did you have to upset what was going on? Ever since you came, he's made our life worse. I think that speaks to their expectations of what it means to follow God. Then it seems like the people of God had expectations. They said, hey, God has promised deliverance. Great, we believe it, but we want him to deliver on our timing and in our fashion. And God says, I am going to deliver. I am going to deliver you. I'm going to keep my promises because I'm a promise-keeping God, but it'll happen in my own timing. It'll happen how I declare it's going to happen, and I'm going to keep it true. But they didn't expect that. They, they expected it to work out how they wanted it to work. So in the meantime, as they were waiting for deliverance and life got harder, they started to question. They started to wonder what's going on. And they started to doubt and, and look towards God and say, where is he? <clears throat> they didn't expect their hardship to get worse. And so many people today have that same expectation of what it means to follow Christ. That whether it's from bad teaching or, or bad thinking or whatever, or just because we are so full of ourselves, we want the end goal of the universe to be our happiness. <clears throat> so many people today in the church, outside the church, they think that God's ultimate purpose is our fulfillment and our happiness. And so when life gets hard and when things don't go as it's supposed to, as we think it's supposed to, we start questioning, we start doubting, and we're going, what is going on? Because again, we make ourselves the, the, the center of the universe and we want God to be working for what we think is our own good. I don't know if these are the lies of the, of, of the so-called prosperity gospel that is so prevalent everywhere that God wants us to be wealthy and healthy and that if you don't, there's something wrong with your own faith. That is, that is anathema. That is not a gospel at all. As opposed to the biblical gospel, it says God has come not just for us to be happy, but God has come so that we can be saved. That God has come so that we can have a relationship with him. That Jesus has sent so that we could actually be conformed to the image of God's son. That we could be changed and transformed. That we could be holy like he is holy and he calls us to be holy. That we could truly could be his. That is the gospel. Now it's not our own doing but it's because Jesus come, came and saved us, dying for us, rising for us, and now ascending for us and reigning for us. That is him working us, making this result. That is the good news. It's not that we will just be happy and life will be on easy street. Happiness will come. Joy and contentment will come as we realize who we're made for and the relationship we're made for. 
But it's not the end-all, be-all, as we are now being conformed to the image of our Son. The Gospel of the Bible tells us again and again that when we are called to Christ, we're called to come and give Him our all. And He leads us through some strange places. Just think about how Luke says in Luke 9, 23 through 24, and he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We don't really use that verse in evangelism, do we? We don't tell people, hey, come to Christ. You got to give it all. You got to deny yourself. You actually have to take up your cross. You have to consider yourself dead. An ex- a prisoner headed to execution. That your plans, your dreams, they're all submitted to Christ. But that is what Christ calls us to. A life given for him. And then when we're experiencing pain and suffering and we're wondering where God is, not to make light of the, the uh, Israelite people under Egyptian rule because they were, they were experiencing pain and suffering and that was not good. And they're wondering where God is. But the truth of the Bible again and again speaks loudly that God uses pain, he uses suffering to conform us to the image of his son, to make us his people. As we just read Paul speaking in Romans 5, through for five, when right before he says, I, I glory in, in, in the glories of God, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. That God uses this for our good to grow us that God was using what was going on in the Israel people under the Egyptians' rule for their good, to grow them, to create that hope as they look to him. And that is where faith comes in. She said, faith is trusting God's I will, surrounded by opposition. This is what faith is, that we trust God in a life that might not be going how we thought it would go. That we trust God and what he has said will happen in a life that maybe hit some speed bumps and has hit some obstacles and it gets hard or pain or suffering or grief or whatever it is you're going through and that maybe cause you question, this is where faith comes in, that faith is trusting God's I will surrounded by opposition against that fact. And at the community, hopefully we're in a part of, we're in a community of faith that can help us lift our eyes past what we're experiencing to the God who we trust in and who we hope in, who has promised, I will. Which brings us to chapter 6, as God responds to Moses. We're just going to read the first 13 verses here. <clears throat> Remember Moses basically has just turned to the Lord and said, why did you send me And this is the Lord's response to Moses. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I will remember, and I have remembered my covenant. 
Say therefore to people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. <coughs> And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into land and that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. I love chapter 6. Because God's response, first of all, is nothing new. It's a repeat of the promises he made Moses that Moses relayed to the Israelite people back in chapter 4. It's the exact same language. I love it because it's nothing new. But I also love it because look what the main uh, wording that's said again and again. I will. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this happen. That God says, hey, guess what, Moses? My promises are still going to be fulfilled. My promises are still going to come to fruition. Why? Because I, the Lord, am making them happen. Now, what we see in chapter 6 is grace writ large over the Bible. That God, his loving of, towards us, his undeserved um, uh, consideration and favor he gives us is grace that he does it. We don't do it. The people of Israel didn't have to somehow improve their life or show some works of faith for God to respond. No, he says he's going to take care of it and he takes care of it, even while they're grumbling and complaining. And that is grace is the same way which God interacts with us through Christ, that he does it. When he says he's going to save us, he saves us. When he says he's going to redeem us, he redeems us. Again and again, we see that writ large over the scripture, but right here in chapter 6, God will ensure it's done. <clears throat> he's going to do it. But look at particularly verses 6 and 7. In these two verses, you have seven I will statements about what is going to happen and it happens exactly how God says it's going to happen. But these are the I wills, the promises that he's already mentioned, but he's reminding again to the Israelite people, to Moses particularly. He says, hey, I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. He's promising that he's going to deliver them from the conflict and from the opposition they are currently experiencing, that he will deliver them from slavery that he, they're no longer going to be slaves. They're going to be freed. They're going to be away from the Egyptians and they're going to be freed. That he will redeem them. That he's going to make them his own. He's going to buy them, as he says, and that I will take you as my people and then I will be your God. This relationship will exist between the people of God and God and they will, they will do, they'll have this relationship. Why? Because God is making it happen. And he finally says, I will bring you into the land, the land I promised to your ancestor, and I will give it to you again and again. I will. 
I will do this. And as we read the rest of Exodus, guess what? The rest of Exodus is how God does chapter 6. Sets it up for how he's going to do it. And he does it. And he drags the people of God, seemingly kicking and screaming to make sure it happens. That it's all about grace. And as I said, this is an example of faith for us. Not a good example, as we look at the Israelite people, but an example that we see in the Bible, hey, what is faith? It's trusting God's I will, surrounded by opposition, that when we read about Israel, we see how we should know the promises of God and so have faith even when life gets hard. <coughs> that God is calling people to trust in him. That he's urging them to lift their eyes. Moses is urging the people to lift their eyes back to God and trust him beyond what they're going through. And we are in the same place. Faith operates in the same way for us because we stand in that same place of what God has already done and what God will do. This is the place of faith. This is where we stand. Now we stand in, I would say, a much better place because we stand on the other side of the cross and so we know Jesus and so we know what he's done in Christ. We know how he has saved us, how he's done all this stuff. We know that and we believe it, but yet we still live in a fallen world. We still live in a world where we experience pain and sorrow and grief and all those things. We still live in a fallen world where our bodies break down and when we have to have surgeries and things don't go right. We still live in this world and so we live in that place of faith because we know what he's done, but we trust and what he will do. That as Christians, we live knowing that we are saved. That through Jesus Christ, he has saved us, period. He has brought, he has made us God's people. That he has paid for all our sins. There's no more sin that needs to be paid for. That because of that, God has nothing but love for us. We live in that reality, but yes, we also live and wait until we are going to be completely sanctified when he comes home. We live in this reality that we're redeemed. He has bought us with a price. We are no longer our own. He has made us his people. This is the reality. This is true. But we wait with expectation until we're completely glorified. And there's no more pain. And there's no more tears. We wait. We live with this reality that we are justified. That in Christ we are made right with God. That the relationship that was broken that we could not mend has been mended by Jesus and we have been made right with our maker. But yet we still wait to have this brought to completion as he's going to bring us and finish the work he started in us. We live in this reality that we have been adopted through Christ. We are God's. He considers us now his children. We are his and he is ours. This is a reality but we wait with expectation until he calls us home or he comes again. We live out this faith that I think we should be called to from reading Exodus 5 and 6 as we wait with expectation, trust, looking where God has already done and waiting what he is going to do. That faith is trusting God and what he has already done while waiting faithfully for the whole promise to come true as he said it would. Faith is trusting God's I will, surrounded by opposition. 
which means as we read this, what is our response? How to respond to a text like Exodus 5 and 6, I think that is an urge or uh, <clears throat> encouragement to fight the good fight of faith. That we fight the faith, the fight, that we fight the fight of faith as we wait. Which means we trust. What does that look like? We trust in our God that when we pick up the word of God and we read about our God and we see who he is, we trust it. We say this is trustworthy. He's telling us who he is and how he's loved us and what he's done for us. We trust it. And right along with trust, we believe it. We live our life by it. We operate our whole life. We orient our life by this truth and we follow it because we believe and trust these things. And as a result, what does that mean? That means we obey. That as we see him command us to live for him, we start living for him in all circles of life. We obey, and then finally, we faithfully wait. That as we're trusting and believing, as we're obeying the commands he's given us, we're faithfully waiting for him to finish the promises that he said he's going to do. That's how we do it. That's how we fight the good fight of the faith. And what does that look like in our lives? I think that means that we are constantly encouraging others, fellow brothers and sisters who might be walking with a limp, who might be going through some hard times and need someone to walk alongside them. We encourage them to lift their eyes past what they're going through to see the God who loves them, the God who has promised them. We secretly seek to encourage people with words and with service to, that, this, is, this is the true thing of faith, that we wait with expectation and we trust and believe. This means that we're constantly praying, praying for ourselves that God, please work in my life so that I can do these things, so that I can trust, so that I can believe like you called me to do, so that I can live for you like you've called me to. We're constantly praying. We're praying for our brothers and sisters. We're praying for our church. We're praying for people who don't believe, that, they can, that, that, that God can reach into their heart and change you how they think and how they process so they can see the reality of who God is and so that they too can be waiting for this promise, that they too can be part of God's. And in all of that, as we practice that, notice that happens in community. That happens in the community of the faith. For the church does these things naturally, then we should be relying on that community as we're encouraging one another, as we're praying for one another, as we're seeking to build up people on how they can trust and believe and how we walk with obedience and how we wait with expectation. But it naturally happens as a church gathers. Corporately together like this as a church gathers smaller and smaller groups or in discipleship groups or one-on-one meetings or in friend groups or how that happens. When the church gathers, when believers get together, we lean on one another as we encourage one another to stand in this faith. Because faith is trusting God's I will surrounded by opposition. Join me in prayer. <coughs> Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. That we can read it, we can know it, we can see you through it. That we can see how you have saved us, how you have worked in our lives. That we can trust that. Believe it to be true, that it will continue. That we can walk faithfully as you called us to walk. Lord, I just pray for each and every person here that we can be your people. 
and that can be a people of faith, knowing that we trust you in the midst of life that sometimes does not look like we thought it would look. But we trust you. We trust that what you have said is true and that your promises will stand true. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.